Hello and welcome to Dowdy, the podcast where me, Mariana Feijó, talk to my guests about the concept of bravery, or braveness, even just the moments where folks have been slightly out of their comfort zones. Lately I've been brave because I've been inviting people I don't know as guests on my podcast. That's the case with today's guest. She's not the first person I haven't met that I have on the podcast. I think she's the third, <laughs> but I've been making more of a leap to have people that... I either haven't met before or who aren't like people I'm as friendly with. Not because I'm unfriendly with, but just because I didn't have as much contact with. And that's scary for many reasons. That's scary because I'm inviting people who may not really know who I am <laughs> and what I do. <laughs> and maybe I'm just like a weird stranger, stalker, creep kind of person that's trying to have a conversation with them and record it which I guess like there's worse things that creeps can do <laughs> recording a conversation is maybe on the lower side of the dangerous things people can do to you and in addition to that there's also your trust or my trust because I'm not sure if everyone has the same relationship with, with themselves that I do probably you don't but <laughs> there's also like the doubt you have in yourself One thing is having a conversation with a friend. Another thing is having a conversation with someone you don't really know. And am I being good at this? Are they bored at what I'm saying? And sometimes, don't get me wrong, sometimes I ask that about my friends as well. Am I boring you? Will you stop being my friend because I can't stop speaking? <laughs> But with a stranger who you're trying to give the best impression of yourself too because maybe who knows maybe they like you maybe they'll want to work with you in the future maybe you just don't want them to think why why am i wasting an hour of my day to talk to this person that's so boring yes that's what's happening inside my brain all the time that's what's going on right now as i record this intro and i'm thinking Fuck, my listeners are getting so bored because I can't stop speaking and I just want to listen to the interview that's coming up. But hey, this is what this space is for, is for me to ramble. That's why I record an intro. I have been finding it really helpful to have this podcast and to understand how I relate to people. Because there's like little things that I notice when I'm doing the edit about like changing the way I'm speaking or like from one episode to the next I notice a change in myself and sometimes it's because I'm tired sometimes it's because I'm worried about the world sometimes it's because I'm talking to someone I don't know as much sometimes it's because they said something that made me <laughs> hide within myself so there's like a lot of things that happen that make me react in certain ways and I'm starting to be more aware of those moments by listening to myself in a conversation with other people. And that's not an experience I usually have because I'm usually within the conversation. So I'm not looking from the outside. What I'm saying is if you have problems communicating, maybe start a podcast. <laughs> And also I don't want more people having podcasts because I want more people to listen to my podcast. But that's enough of a ramble now. This episode of Doughty starts, as it always does, with my guest, Helen Duff, introducing herself. My name's Helen Duff. I'm a comedian, a writer and a podcaster. I have a podcast called Come As You Are, which is all about orgasms that I started releasing at the beginning of this year. And I'm also a brilliant baker and have got some mini banana loaves in the oven at this moment. Ooh. <laughs> Now I'm jealous. Yeah. I have nothing to eat afterwards. Listen, my boyfriend bought me, I think he's got this really, probably quite smart plan to get me onto the Great British Bake Off. He really wants me to go. I'm considering, look, I love being a comedian, but given everything that's happening in the last year, I have started applying for like proper jobs outside of comedy. I say proper jobs. One of them is a psychology MSc conversion course. So we'll see if I get that. That's like escaping into more education than coming out the other side and being like, oh, great. Now I have a psychology degree and I can be a comedian who's also a psychologist. Uh, that's, that's really my plan. 
So as a civilian studying psychology, he reckons I'll, I'll have a better chance of getting on Great British Bake Off. And then uh, he's bought me, long story short, this subscription to a baking box, which means every month I get delivered from Great British Bake Off a recipe, some ingredients, you have to add some like fresh things like milk and eggs and stuff, mm-hmm. in this case bananas. And then what's really fun is like a, a baking implement. So this time it was a mini loaf tray silicone lovely shade of blue very bake off last month it was like a cake stand which i've never had i've never had like a professional cake stand and an icing bag yeah it's cool so i'm doing that so that's hence why i'm showing off with my mini loaves i think i'm a good baker and my grandma was like a proper professional baker before she got married wow i did have like my parents had a cake mixer that still exists from it was one of their wedding presents so it's like 40 years old and it still works and it's amazing yeah and yeah i cook less in london because i don't have the things yeah yeah it's nice to bake with nice like implements yeah. that are pastel colors <laughs> yeah the colors make make the food <laughs> my papa was a baker as well he owned a series of bakeries in norwich oh cool yeah my my great-grandfather was had like a bakery and all the kids worked in it So, yeah, the women, when they got married, they stopped doing it for Mm -hmm. a job Mm because they got married. But my grandma did it for, like, all our birthdays and really any occasion. It didn't have to be an occasion. There was always cake. Great. That's nice. I like that vibe. How would you define bravery? How would I define bravery? Oh, gosh. I think being brave is about really standing up for what you believe in. I think that's massive because sometimes sometimes it's obviously really hard to do that in the face of adversity or people who don't believe the same thing. But also sometimes it's really hard to identify what you do believe in. Often I'm in a place of real ambivalence, I think induced by fear, laziness, just a general like sense of, oh, if I say the wrong thing, loads of people might not like me. So yeah, I get really scared about being specific about what I think is right and wrong because especially nowadays there's so many people who might shout you down or catch you on like the tiniest caveat of what you've said so I really respect people who are prepared to put themselves out there stand up for something that yeah they'll probably be called out on but they're just going to go for it anyway and like It's more important to them to express how they feel about a thing than it is to worry about the kind of tiny nuances of what they might get caught on. Yeah. Yeah. It is really hard. Yeah, I understand that because you you do try, whenever I write an opinion or publicly say something, I try to say it with all the nuance I can fit in. And in this age of social media and low characters, that's Mm -mm -mm. so hard to do. I know I'm constantly posting things and then thinking afterwards, I would like to write a tiny essay underneath that tweet so that people know exactly how delicately I've thought about this thing in a way that I can never express, obviously, in that tiny amount of characters. I don't do much Twitter as a consequence, you know. I do a lot more Instagram probably because I find it more fun. Like I can do characters and stuff. I don't tend to do character videos that much, but I find the interaction between the visual... The capacity to have like a visual element as well as language is much more, just speaks, yeah, has multiple layers of meaning in a way that like a tweet can be really quite hard and like one dimensional. Yeah, there's no no tone to what you write mm. whilst you're speaking. There's tone at least and more because there's hands. I'm For those of you listening, my hands can't stop moving. So yeah, there's hands, there's movement. So you can pass on a a different... I think it's also like as a visual person, as a performer, I've always really loved that duality of like somebody's body in a space combined with what they're saying or doing. And often those two things can contradict each other quite significantly. So like in theatre, for example, it's always amazing when you are reading a script. I teach English literature to kids and like a tutor outside of comedy and I'm always stressing like when we read a play don't just think about the words on the page like imagine where these people are in space like how close they are together or the fact that they're speaking on their own on stage to an audience so that yeah the kind of fragility the vulnerability of the human body combined with like sometimes really fierce rhetoric is always a really fascinating kind of compromise or contradiction and I think in Instagram I know this sounds like really highfalutin to compare it to like Shakespeare obviously it's not but you know when I watch an IG live they're really messy quite regularly like these people who are 
influencers or really have a huge following and then suddenly you see them speaking uh, or in a podcast or, uh, well, it has to have a visual element really. You suddenly see them like speaking and with their whole body and their whole face and stuff. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what situation would be where they'd be half a body and half a face. But anyway, um, yeah, and it really... It gives the whole their whole personality, their whole person, another dimension that I think sometimes people who are really fast with words and hard sometimes with words, you lose that sense of, of their humanity a bit. Mm -hmm. And I guess like you do as a performer think a lot about how people are perceiving you and what you do in comedy because like, I do a lot of stand-up mostly stand-up right now which I think is slightly different than the type of uh, shows I've seen you do mm -hmm. you may do stand-up as well but you do more of um more of a piece where you actually use your body to mm -hmm. or what I have seen of you you actually use your body to pass on a message as well totally yeah I use like I basically just think, oh, what are the different ways in which I can engage an audience? What are the different tools in my box, as it were? Not necessarily my vagina, I mean like literally <laughs> my toolbox. But yeah, I think it's a shame just to... Uh, do you know what I mean? It's uh, To be honest, I enjoy watching people who are good at stand-up, who are able to paint pictures with words that mean it, it feels like more than just speaking. I would say that most... Stand-ups are actually, there's some fantastic stand-ups out there, but for my taste, I often get bored quite quickly. So, like, the brilliant ones, obviously, you don't, because they have that capacity to make it feel like they're doing more than just speaking words. But I love watching people who use more than just language, who really yeah. appreciate the body being in space and what that means, and, and maybe employ music or physicality or... I do think, and this is, like, going on a, a huge tangent, but I do think that... Because I, before I started doing stand-up, I was doing improv on characters. So it was way more physical in many ways. And then I started doing stand-up. And it does feel like now using box in another uh, mm. context, it does feel like you're put in a box that you have to be there with a mic. And it's hard to run away from that. It's just like I'm starting to learn how to play around with that and just yeah. bring other things to I what I still would call stand-up. I completely agree with you. I think it's a chat. It's a massive challenge. And I've had to check in with myself a lot because I really, I do do stand-up and I really enjoy it as a, I mean, I do my version of stand-up, I guess. <laughs> I really enjoy it as a challenge because to be able to be, to be able to write a strong joke is not easy and is so satisfying and is so reliable. Gosh, you can really fall back on that. And it's like, oh, thank God I've got that in the bag. But I think it's also really good to appreciate that sometimes when you try and get good at something, like um, if you're studying fine art, you can lose faith in your natural talent. So you mm -hmm. can like make so much effort to be good at a certain discipline in a classical, specific way that everybody else appreciates as like the way to do this thing, mm -hmm. that you end up doubting your natural creativity, the things that make you uniquely who you are, like the things that actually light up a room if you're if you're having a really great time, like your laugh, your enjoyment. And I'm trying to get that balance right because I love I love a challenge. I love the craft of stand up. I think it's so mm. it's so amazing. And having conversations with other comedians about it is really fun because it, it's kind of an endless puzzle. But at the same time, I never want to get hung up on like there's one specific right way to do it and I'm not doing it right. I'd rather like yeah work on my craft at the same time as really appreciating that I have a lot of things to bring to it that maybe other people might not be doing in the same way. Yeah, and that will be what will make you uh, stand out, I guess. Mm. Uh, veering completely uh, back to bravery, have mm. you thought of about moments in your life in which you have been brave that you'd like to share with us? Woof. Um, okay, so this is quite tough for me because I don't actually think of myself as being brave but I've had to do a little reassessment because actually I think from the outside it looks like I take quite a lot of risks and I put myself out there quite a lot <laughs> whereas from the inside it often feels like I'm just doing the only thing that uh, feels right in the moment and yeah. trying not to question it too much and also just uh, sometimes massively questioning it and, and not feeling very brave but um Moments where I've been brave. I had to be brave quite young. I used to fly to see my dad. He got a job in Australia when I was six. My parents had divorced when I was three. And he moved there and it was all very confusing. It wasn't very clear what had happened. 
And then my brother and I, my brother was three years older than me, started flying to see him. His company, like part of him getting the job and then being moved out there, was that they would pay for us to fly out to see him a couple of times a year. So this is back in the 90s. And I didn't know anybody at my primary school who'd even been to France. Like at that point, I was so young that most people hadn't even been on a, like a, a holiday abroad, let alone flown 24 hours, because that's how long it took at that time on their own at six <laughs> to Australia. So that was quite massive. And I think I learned, well, look, during that time, I definitely learned how to perform because I would watch the stewardesses. Like, they were such amazing specimens. It's not the 60s, obviously. They're not quite the same as, like, Pan Am, but they were still beautiful. And there was this one time that I saw a woman, she released, you know when you do like the cross check to take off and you have to, there's a big, it's sort of like an arm. You, you'll know what I'm talking about if you've ever watched a stewardess at the door of the plane and they have to secure this big arm downwards, right? It turns out if you put it the wrong way, instead of it locking the door, the parachute, you know, the like the bouncy slide that you would go down and that you, in the um, safety things, you're always reminded to take off your high heels. I mean, I've never worn high heels on a flight, but I love that image. Anyway, that bursts out instead. So instead of it locking, that bursts out. And that's what happened. So she did it the wrong way. We were about to take off. We were still on the tarmac. And we had to wait another four hours because they had to fold the whole thing back in. They had to deflate it and then fold it all back in. And her face, when that happened, she was a redhead, I remember, because I'm no longer so ginger, but I used to be a ginger when I was younger. And just because it's faded, not because I've done anything to get rid of it. But she was a really striking redhead. And she did this, like, I'm not going to be able to convey it because this is not a visual medium, but this sort of shocked, but also like, OMG, so adrenalized and excited, gasp. And she looked at her fellow stewardess and, and laughed a little bit in that way that you do when you're like, shitting it and she caught my eye because I was watching her because we'd often be quite close to where this like the galley so that they could keep an eye on us and she looked at me and she like put her fingers to her lips <laughs> like don't tell anyone and shook her head like we had this secret and I felt massively privileged to have seen this thing go down and then obviously I, I saw her pick up the phone and have to call the captain and explain what happened but yeah that process of watching a person compose themselves after like a huge uh, disaster has gone down was really exciting and I got to see a lot of those I couldn't sleep I could never sleep on these flights so at like seven they would dress me up I'd put on the stewardess jacket I'd wear the little hat and they would give me a tray and I'd go and collect empties at the back and I really enjoyed that I really enjoyed playing that role and I think it helped me to escape the reality of what was quite a painful process by performing and I really it's been, a, it's been a funny time. I know a lot of actors talk about this and a lot of performers talk about separating out the performance, the thing that they love about performing from like the perhaps slightly unhealthy escapist element. But for me, it's always been a place where I feel most myself, like I feel really free and creative and happy. So, um, so yeah, that's an example of being brave as a, as a kid was kind of stepping up to do those long flights and always, I watched a lot of soap operas mainly Australian ones actually I loved Home and Away and Neighbours and I remember always thinking like in a real kind of like music video fashion as if I was having some grand romance with my parents which is so bizarre but I think you can understand when you're a child that's kind of how that's like the only love you've ever really known yeah and always feeling like I was leaving one of them behind at an airport and being like airports are normally happy places people are going on holiday and here I am you know properly love actually like the opposite of that Hugh Grant monologue where he's like I love seeing people in arrivals I'd always be in absolute bits because I'd always felt like I was leaving someone behind and that was quite hard but I mean to be honest I've always been such a dramatic person that my brother seemed to deal with it much less emotionally and um, I never really know how traumatic it really was or whether it was just because I was playing it for like <laughs> my Oscar. I used to, you know, when I was little, I used to rehearse my Oscar speech. Absolutely. I was a real drama queen. So it could be that too. Did you always keep that sense of play and drama as you grew up or did you lose it at some point? Mm, did I lose it? And then regain point? it? That's a really good example. Oh, really good question. I would say I massively lost it. I would say I massively lost it. And then some of my actions suggest I still had it. Listen, I, I've talked about this on other... I've, I've made a show about it, so it's no secret. But I had anorexia when I was 
or I, I don't know what the right word is. I had it. I suffered with it. I was anorexic uh, when I was like 17, 18. Those are my worst years. And obviously it stays with you for a very long time. But it kind of, yeah, it was most chronic then in sixth form. And I would say I really went inside myself and I didn't trust my instincts at all. I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of control going on because I was in kind of chaos in reaction to some stuff that had happened before I started sixth form and didn't know how to deal with and didn't have anyone to talk to it about. So I found this kind of like sanctuary in really strict rules and really particular behaviours. And that was not a playful time. But (laughs) saying that... I still had this huge ambition to become an actress. That was like so important to me. Hmm, is that true? In my heart, it's always been really important to me. It's been like, this is something I feel like I love and also I'm good at. People respond to it in a way that makes me feel really happy and I lose myself in it and it it feels natural and yeah. And I definitely questioned that. I didn't apply to drama school out of school because... I think my eating disorder and everything it had come out of had led me to doubt myself so significantly, not trust myself, not trust the world, not feel safe, that I no longer believed I could be an actress or that that was a realistic future for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to take the risk. So I didn't apply for drama schools until after I'd been to university and kind of taken the safe route. But at sixth form I still did plays and I did some really out there roles I remember my I didn't do classics so like it's funny how you build this narrative of like a really dark time and you forget all of the bits that kind of slightly contradict it so I didn't do classics but or Latin or anything like that but this Australian classics teacher approached me and said I've got this ancient Greek play it's a comedy it's it's not we've never performed an ancient Greek comedy before but I think you'd be really great as the central character who is this obese alcoholic man a farmer I'd like you to play it like that and he's constantly being targeted by the gods everything's going wrong for him it's like a farce (laughs) and I was like okay (laughs) so I did that and I think it was a success. I have absolutely no memory of how it went down. I remember him, God bless that man, buying me a low-fat cheesecake, a low-fat lemon cheesecake, as like a first opening night gift and me being offended because he'd bought a low-fat version and me thinking, what, does he think I have a problem with food or something? And it was like, oh gosh. I had absolutely no sense of how obvious it was to everyone else. Mm-hmm. I actually got pulled out of school shortly after that and it was very obvious to everyone, but I thought I'd been hiding it really, really well and I was incredibly private and tense about it. So I would say I lost my playfulness internally. Like in my in the monologue, there was no joy yeah. going on. I had no trust, no play, no, no love for life. But on the outside, I obviously still was like, if somebody asked me to do something, I'll do it, even if it's an alcoholic farmer from ancient Greece. <laughs> so it was, it was very important for me to fulfill things that people put in front of me. But yeah, so I would say that's a place where I lost my playfulness. And actually finding it again, getting a taste for it again, is what really pulled me out of that time. If I hadn't found clowning, if I hadn't realised I could be spontaneous and stupid and loved by my peers for being just like, my most kind of out there self then I don't think I would have um I don't think I would have recovered in the way that I have I'll never say that I'm uh, eating disorders are really sticky and they really get their claws into the little bitches so I don't want to ever say that I am like I'll never go back there you know it's still the echoes are still with me sometimes depending on if I'm going through like this year has been hard because of everything changing and and when when stuff is taken out of your control that can sometimes be when it rears its ugly head because you feel the need to regain some sense of order somehow and I've dealt with that really well I'm really proud of how I've kind of seen that been with it and not allowed it to actually become like an active part of my life but other than those moments where it's you know it becomes kind of like oh yeah hello that thought process again I think I've made a pretty full recovery and and I and I really didn't think I I would and not every day but often I have moments where I go oh wow I'd forgotten how much that used to rule my life and the absence of it the sense of it just not even figuring in my mind to kind of 
count calories or think about what I ate yesterday or what I'm going to eat tonight, you know, in relation, you know, measuring meals against each other or exercise, etc. The absence of that is fucking delicious. So nice. Yeah. But you don't necessarily think about it all the time. It's just not no. there, so it's uh, weighed off. Yeah. No, it's it's similar, I guess, to like if you've ever experienced depression or like a physical injury. You know, it's really chronic for a time. It's so severe, it's never not on your mind. And then suddenly it's not there anymore. You've healed. Uh, I mean, it's not sudden. It's a long process. And then you sort of just forget because you're yeah. okay now and you're happy most of the time. And then there'll be moments where you go like, oh, my God, that pain is gone. Oh, wow. Remember when I could barely walk on that leg? Wild. I never even question walking on it now. You know, that kind of thing. I am. It's a very small injury, but I'm currently injured on my knee. And I uh, also like it got way better. And I also think back to that, those few days that I couldn't walk or. (laughs) Yeah. And I still can't do like full on exercise. So it's still like, Mm. yeah. But I did ask the question about losing play because I feel like I was a very playful kid that used to sing in shops when my mom would take me to shops. Then somehow I lost it. And as you were saying that you still did like plays when people ask you asked you for stuff, I'd still do that, but mm-hmm. that was never on my mind as something that I would do with my life and in my future because I was going to be a scientist and whatever. So yeah, it's like uh, it's really interesting how, uh, despite not having like something as influential in my life as having like a, an eating disorder it did go away because I need to be responsible and not play oh that's so funny that you decided you had to get serious and become a scientist and now I'm deciding I have to get serious and become a scientist <laughs> in terms of doing the psychology yeah yeah this year did make me think why did I <laughs> decide not to be responsible five years ago and now the plague Uh, yeah look I think that's a good thing to talk about actually I'd really like to because there have been moments where I have really been a bitch to myself been proper proper nasty around why didn't you make certain choices that the inner critic has just come out fierce and has you know because I didn't get the government grant I know everyone has had a different time, so there's no point in comparing because, like, mm. people will have been going through shit whatever happens. It's been crazy. But definitely that voice in my head has been really horrible around, like, wow, there are some people who are furloughed and just having a great, you know, just living the life. And actually, of course, I know everyone's terrified about jobs and stuff, but it's certainly, especially at the beginning, being self-employed, being creative, working in the arts felt like the most stupid fucking choice you could have ever made with your life. Yeah. And fighting against, or like in more meditative speak, meditative, that's a hard word to say, speak, being with that voice, allowing it to be there and then not being convinced by it has sometimes been really tough. But I, I actually now, given that this is a podcast about bravery, I think, gosh, the people I know who've kept creative, who've run online gigs, made podcasts, engaged in things that bring people joy are so important, like so, so key. Otherwise, what kind of world are we going to come out into? Just this world where people decide, oh, I've made really stupid choices because I wasn't supported properly by the government. The structure of our economy isn't built to acknowledge me. So I'm now just going to bow down to that pressure and get a proper job in air quotes. I think that would be a horrible, horrible world to re-enter into. But it is very scary because I have seen a lot of people around me who have creative jobs thinking about it and many of them doing conversion courses and stuff like that. So it does feel like all of them are planning to give up on their creative uh, Mm, bits and mm. just go into something more serious. And although I totally understand it and I support them it's like no don't don't don't. do you think they will completely give up on it though or do you think they will just find a bit more balance because I I was really lucky I had audiobook work so I was able to set up a studio at home and record from home and although it wasn't you know I wasn't high and flying uh, high and fly flying high in terms of the money I was making it was enough to pay my rent it was enough to cover our food and not feel frightened yeah And I think making sure that you have a little backup like that or at least something that you can fall back on, like writing, copywriting, all these different things that people have have found to make, yeah, is important. Because 
I think a lot of people have spoken about this, but like free form creativity with no bounds where you just have endless time to do whatever you want is kind of terrifying and often doesn't produce the best results. So it's good, I think, as an artist to have like a little thing two days a week or whatever that looks like, the equivalent of time wise, that isn't, that doesn't require you to be creative, that requires you just to do something quite automatic and easy. Yeah, and I've never been a full-on creative, so uh, I I have a day job. So yeah, there's like always that kind of balance. Yeah, it's more the way people are. I I'm sure they won't fully give up on their creative bits, but the way they are speaking now, it sounds like they they will, mm-hmm. um, and that's scary. <laughs> or yeah, it makes you think of a world without those creative people who you love so much. But yeah. I'm sure they won't give up completely. Another sweet thing you said about your experience traveling to Australia was how the stewardesses will dress you up and make you collect um, (laughs) empty glasses or cups. Because I did used to help out when I would go with my mom to the hairdresser. The hairdresser will have me help out. But it's like in a small town where everyone knows each other. So it was this small kid that everyone knows is helping put the rolls in my hair but in like a plane flying over an ocean it feels like a way more of a a sweet thing to do for a kid did you like brush up the hair and stuff as well or did you just do the nice jobs yeah only like the easy the things that wouldn't ruin anyone's hair (laughs) (laughs) great i think hairdressers are magical places i'd love to have been there as a kid that sounds really cool on the other side of the scale have there been moments in your life in which you haven't done stuff for lack of bravery or fear (sighs) writing I often put off writing because I think I've got nothing to say I've got nothing in my head my imagination is gone dead and I think you have to just call bullshit on those voices and do it anyway because if I think about the work that I have really resonated with the writing that I've been like, wow, I'm so glad that person put that out into the world. They're always extremely personal, really simple, very clear and very, like the kind of work that probably comes across as being easy, but is really hard because to pare something down and to make it kind of straight as an arrow on the page is not easy. I know that for sure. I think overwriting is much easier than paring back. If those people had allowed themselves to believe that what they were writing wasn't valuable, I would have lost out a lot as a reader. So I think I'm often not very brave around pushing myself to do more writing because I love live performance I love the pressure the adrenaline of a gig where I have to turn up because there's an audience and I have to perform because they're watching me and often with something like a screenplay or pitching sketches I will put it off until the very last moment if there's no deadline it's never going to happen because I just have so much doubt around my own capacity to be funny on the page which is silly and again coming back to what we talked about with stand-up like you just have to write to get better you have to work on it Mm -hmm. so that's probably an instance where I haven't been very brave and haven't like disciplined myself I think there's a really interesting relationship with bravery and discipline like you can really give in to fear and call it procrastination and then just let yourself off the hook time and time again. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, that totally resonates with me. And I feel like self-accountability is so, so hard. Yeah, and giving yourself deadlines. It, that's what I'm trying to do, give myself deadlines. But mm. then if I miss the deadline, there's no, <laughs> nothing bad happens because it's just me. So yeah, I totally relate to that. I even put myself through submitting to shows I don't really like just because there's a deadline mm-hmm. and at least I'm writing a sketch for that show that's even a great if I idea. don't really want to to be a part of it that's a really good a good idea because then you don't have you're not so emotionally bound up in the outcome if you don't give a yeah. shit about the actual yeah show that's a great idea I've talked with other guests in the podcast about the way bravery sometimes is on the in the eye of the beholder, mm-hmm. uh, when people will think you are brave for things that you, as you were saying, that you might not, it's just, you're just living your life and it feels unavoidable that you will do something because it's just part of your life and then someone from the outside will tell you you're really brave for doing something <laughs> like that. Um, I would say that looking from the outside, it's really brave to tackle some of the themes you have tackled with your work. I haven't seen your show about uh, struggling with eating disorders. That feels like something really brave. It was very um, intense. 
It was very intense, but it was also very funny. I played a cookery show host called Jill. It was called Vanity Bites Back. And this was her big moment. She was unveiling her pilot. She's basically doing like a Nigella Lawson cookery show for TV. And this was her pilot show. But it was a theatre show, but it was kind of set up like a TV filming. And she was a real ditz. She was very funny. She was very acerbic. People compared her to like Margaret Thatcher mixed with Alan Partridge. And I really loved playing her. And I needed her as a character. Now I do myself, I do stand up. But I really needed her as a character to be able to talk about it and have fun with it in a way that wasn't like me just flaying yeah. myself alive. But yeah, I cooked a cheesecake on stage and um, it was a complete mess. And at one point I like rubbed butter up my arms and then, because I had to melt it because I didn't have a microwave. That was the reasoning behind it and then I like scratched it all off to be able to put it into the cheesecake base the buttery biscuit base this was pre-MasterChef so I was well ahead of Greg Davies there but not Greg Davies Greg Wallace but I left as a consequence so theatre so beautiful and these like claw marks on my arms where the butter had been and where I'd scratched it off so it was quite emblematic of the kind of damage you can do to yourself whilst on the surface being a really giving generous person who loves food um yeah, so that was that show. Just, yeah, that was a character comedy yeah. show. But I'd say that even like the shows I've seen of yours that deal with sexuality and the fact that it took you like a while to be able to orgasm and yeah. the fact that that's part of the podcast you are doing now as well. Yeah. It comes from the same place. Mm -hmm. I think most people have a hard time talking about their sexuality. So that <laughs> also feels like a brave thing to be honest about it. Whilst at the same time being something that is personal and probably will generate work that's more engaging and interesting for other people to to see because i also agree with what you were saying before uh, but it does seem like a brave thing to do we are moving at present and i found a big file of like doctor's notes and kind of assessments and stuff i'd been doing this cbt program cognitive behavioral therapy where they asked you about beliefs that you held and they asked you and they're trying to challenge those beliefs right with this like quite methodical process And so I had all of these documents, that I'd, these sheets that I'd had to fill out. And I had written, they'd said, please list any positive attributes you can think of that you have. Take just one minute and push yourself to write for that full minute without stopping. In an effort, obviously, to kind of combat you being like stuck for things to say. And I had written in the space, are you allowed to write things down that you can think of several reasons for why they're not true? but you also hope that they might be, question mark. That had been my entire answer in the positive attributes section. <laughs> and uh, my boyfriend and I laughed a lot about that because it said so much about how when you're feeling negative, there's like no way out of it. But also in that document, I found a thing that said, and it essentially like summed up my whole comedy career. It was terrifying. It said whatever the negative belief was, which was something along the lines of if I allow people to know how badly I feel about myself, they will hate me and think the same thing. And then it was something around like, how can you challenge that belief? Something around like, I can't know what people are thinking. I can't prejudge them. I wouldn't like to be prejudged myself. And also I can't control the way that other people feel. So I might as well let that go and live my life. And then it said behaviors that you can practice daily to challenge the belief you've been carrying. And I wrote to try to be honest about what I'm thinking and feeling, even when it's difficult, because it's likely that other people will be feeling similar things. And by sharing what's happening for me, it makes more space for play and possibility than by keeping secrets and isolating myself. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that's like a definition of the way I've approached, yeah, every show right. I've made. Yeah. Yeah, it's basically like, if I show you mine, then maybe we can be friends, is, is essentially it, yeah. Yeah, but I think the question I wanted to ask is whether you think dealing with those more private, if you will, subjects in your work is a brave thing, if you felt you were being brave, if now in hindsight you think it's brave, or do you think that it's just people putting their own perceptions of the world on you? Did I feel brave at the time? No, I felt like it was necessary for my... So with Vanity Bites Back, it felt like it was necessary for me. The title of that show came from a friend of mine, friend in air quotes, although I think they've changed since. But uh, back in the day, telling me that eating disorders were 
not a real mental health issue. They were cries for attention from people who were so vain that they could only think about what they looked like and that's why they were getting ill. And I felt so angry about that statement. And at the time, I didn't challenge that person because I was also so hurt. And I was being completely covetous of my eating disorder because I wasn't telling them that I had one. They were speaking about someone else and I was not brave. I was terrified that A, they would find out and think I was vain and B, that my eating disorder would get found out and that I would no longer be able to have it anymore because it was like a huge protective shield. Actually, it was a huge obstacle to me getting better. It was a huge obstacle to me being myself. But at the time, it felt like a safety blanket, which is this really weird dichotomy. Anyway, I made the show many years later after that statement because of that anger and because of that real sense that they were not right and that that had not been, my reaction had not been right to allow them to get away with saying that. But at the time, I just didn't have the words because I was so emotionally close to it that I feared that if I challenged them and then they still believed they were right after we'd had the conversation, I would feel so exposed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I called it Vanity Bites Back and I wanted to really express the complexity of the whole thing. And I think I did do that. I think I, I really captured in this character who was compassionate and complex and lovable but also fucking horrible to herself and terrified and quite frightening as well you know all of these different contrasts that I think she her experience was compelling and I guess it comes back to what I was talking about right at the beginning when we were talking about Instagram lives I think I love theatre and drama in general you know on television on screen because you get such a full, when it's well written such a full sense of a person struggling with like so many elements of life mm-hmm. and I I guess I didn't think it was brave what I was doing because I was really passionate about representing something you know truthful and honest and engaging and entertaining way so for me it was the project itself was so important and I didn't and I wanted to do the <laughs> experience that had gone into making it justice that it felt, it just felt really essential. It felt Mm -hmm. like I knew it would be healing. I hoped it would be healing for me because of what I've talked about before in terms of like trying to be more honest and open. But at the same time, I also just, I think I got lost in like the craft of it. Yeah, Yeah. which is is what made it enjoyable because otherwise it would have been tortuous. I think if I'd set myself this task of like representing anorexia, which of course would be impossible in any kind of complete way. Yeah, I do think like from the outside, people will say that you have been brave because you've talked about something so personal. But it does like from uh, comparing that it comes from that moment in your life in which you haven't challenged this person that said this thing for lack of bravery. Mm-hmm. It is like years later addressing that in a way, maybe mm. in a way that is maybe no longer brave because time has passed and you are producing it as a work of art rather sure. than a reply at a time that can be, have a reaction to it. I also, I mean, that show was inspired by my own experiences, but I kind of got like permission to make it because I saw a show. I think I was already in the process of like developing it with a director. And then I saw a show by Caroline Horton, who's an amazing artist, theatre maker. And she had made a show called Mess, which was like a a three-person, three-hander play that had been about eating disorders and, and mental health in general. And I was like, oh, wow, you can do it. And she'd used clowning and stuff and I found it, you know, just seeing somebody else do it. And I think I think bravery is like tiny sparks that then light a fire that then catches, you know, the other people that warms other people. Because I would say I was sparked by somebody else. And then I made my show in the hope that I would start conversations with audiences. So there was like a small there's me lighting a match but there's also the only reason I'm doing that is because I want to cook up something that other people can eat and enjoy and engage with Mm -hmm. and that's true of all my shows like the podcast yeah it came out of my experiences with orgasms and being fascinated by the fact that like for so long I thought it was only me and then I realized through making that show no not at all there's lots of people who 
either struggle with orgasm or something else around sex or there's lots of misconceptions around sex in general or misunderstandings so it was a whole wealth of unanswered questions and fun things that we could play with together as an audience and uh, that's what I wanted to explore in the podcast and and keep exploring with different guests and getting their different insights and experiences because that's kind of I don't think it's necessarily brave I think it's like necessary to humanity to share stories and to vibe off each other (laughs) to put it very gently yeah i do totally agree with you to contextualize the reason why i started this podcast is because Mm. uh, there's um an outside perspective like people are telling me i'm brave all the time for things that i don't think are brave but it is true that whenever people talk about certain subjects uh the outside world will stamp you as brave and I do know, because I do listen to your podcast, that you do talk about the bravery of the people that came and opened themselves up to talk yeah. to you. So it is interesting how much in bravery there is about the way people perceive what you are doing as brave and mm. what you think is a brave thing that you've done. Listen, I've done a lot of clowning workshops. I've run clowning workshops and I've been a participant. And I think bravery is really special to see in action. And it's completely individual. So for one person getting up on stage in front of an audience of uh, strangers or even friends is incredibly risky feels like a huge exposure and for somebody else it's like give me some of that they can't wait you know so it's um I think it totally depends on the person and it's really when you're in the presence of it when you're in the presence of somebody taking a step into a space that they're not necessarily familiar with that's really exciting. Is there anything coming up in your future that you will have to be brave for? I always have to really back myself. I run a, a comedy night called Makers of Meaning. It's online and it's me. I play film critic and New York's preeminent film critic and chauffeur, Rosetta Stone. She's a huge character and she hosts this big film night where we show clips from movies made by women, either produced, directed or written, or all three in Barbara Streisand's case, pre-2000, because I was really feeling as if I hadn't watched enough movies made by women. And so I wanted to set up the night, essentially. And I have improvisers come on. We show clips and then I interview them as Rosetta and they play cast and crew. So you might have, say, Barbara Streisand, Nicolas Cage, or you might have the intimacy coordinator. You might have the candle in a certain Mm -hmm. shot. So it's really fun. And it's also a leap of faith because throughout lockdown, I've been working with improvisers who I've not played with before. So you do loads of setup beforehand, obviously, but on the night it's like, okay, let's see how we jam. And I love that. I love looping into the unknown. But technically it's quite a big challenge because I'm running the show. Mm -hmm. I'm checking in with audiences. I'm taking questions. I'm letting people into the Zoom. I'm making sure everyone's got their tickets. All of that, showing the clips, etc. So it's quite massive as well as performing. And um, you have to really back myself before every show. And also, I also I just worry, like, no one's going to come. So the whole promotion process, etc., is a monthly, like, cycle of just making sure I've done the work to ensure yeah. people know about it enough. Yeah. And it's always, like, the promoting the work. I don't know. I find, maybe you, you don't find that, but I find, like, the promoting the work I do sometimes feels like people must be tired of it. I do this totally. every month. Totally that, yeah, like... God, everyone just thinks I'm banging on about this all the time. Whereas actually nobody, nobody's watching really. Nobody's spotting that it's, nobody cares how many times you tweet about a thing. Hardly anyone's checking. Yeah. (laughs) Is there anyone real or fictional from your own life or just someone like a famous person that you would use as an example of bravery? Whoa, I had one in my mind then and they disappeared, which is so weird. I know everyone has their caveats, etc. But I do think at the moment, I think Jamila Jamil is doing some amazing work. And she is really cool around getting stuff wrong. Like what I said at the beginning in terms of like saying what you believe in and standing up for it with the full understanding that you will probably be attacked at every angle for getting it wrong. And I think she really does that and is heading up some quite important campaigns around... Obviously, people being more comfortable with their bodies 
but also just in general women's rights etc so I think she's quite inspiring as a person yeah I have seen you tweet about and, and I bring this up with everyone that cycles in London <laughs> you I see I've seen you tweet about cycling and that's like one of the things that I find braver for people to do because I've learned how to cycle like three years ago yeah. and I have I don't think about going into traffic to cycle at any time soon. and I like to leave people with a thing that I think they're brave about and that's like definitely one of the biggest things physically I think people are being very brave when they cycle cycle in Thank London you. yeah whereas for me that just represents freedom I'm like oh so much better than getting on the tube yeah do you have like any less thoughts about bravery that you really think I haven't touched on. I would also say, because I kind of didn't plan my answer at all to the inspiring or person that you think is brave. I know this is quite cliche, but my grandma, she died recently and she was so brave as a woman. She was such a force of nature right up until the end. She had quite a shocking accident. And um, if I can be like 10% of the person she was in my life, I would feel extremely lucky and I feel extremely lucky to have known her I think what she had and what she did was she loved really fiercely really powerfully she made you feel incredibly important and I think that's something it's not necessarily brave in like the technical sense but it it allows other people to be brave I think I think people who facilitate that feeling in others who make other people feel seen and special and protected and like they have something they're rooted to those are the people who are actually facilitating bravery because they're making it possible for people to believe in themselves yeah. she would be my person I would say that's great and that also reminds me of another thing that I've thought about since I have the podcast and it's that idea that the perception people have of what you do that is brave is probably something that will inspire them to be brave because it's not something that is brave for you but maybe because that person sees you do it which is something they are afraid of they will then think ah it is possible <laughs> people do do it so yeah. I will try I it. mean if somebody has an orgasm as a consequence of listening to my podcast who didn't think they could ever have one that would be fucking great I'd love that for them I think so. Let's uh, uh, encourage everyone to have more <laughs> orgasms. If that's what people take from this episode as well. Just go just go on. Turn off the podcast and just go and try and have an orgasm. Do you have anything else to plug? No. My podcast is called Come As You Are and it's out every Tuesday. And uh, my improv night, the next one is on the 14th of April. You can get free tickets online. Thank you so much for being a guest at my podcast, Helen. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow me at, at Beats on Twitter and Instagram for all dowdy updates. As all podcasts will tell you, all rates and reviews will be super welcome. And do share the podcast with your friends or on your socials. Hashtag DowdyPod. I would also like to know your pics of people who, to you, are examples of bravery. Share them on your reviews or tweet them at me. Huge, huge thank you to Champagne for the podcast jingle and a bunch of other things that are on podcast related. If you've enjoyed listening to Dowdy, have some spare to give, and would like to support me and help me improve on my tech and skills, all tips are welcome through PayPal and Coffee on at Mariana's Beats. I've been Mariana Feijó. Until next week.